Writing your oncology case report is a huge undertaking, and it's easy to make silly mistakes that can derail your entire writing process. That's why you need my brand new masterclass, the three-step framework for a finished case report. In this free masterclass, you'll learn three of the biggest mistakes to avoid when writing your case report, the secrets to actually finishing your case report, no matter the patient case you've chosen, and my proven three-step framework for starting and finishing your very own oncology case report. Save your seat today at theoncopt.com slash framework. Again, that's theoncopt.com slash framework. Welcome to the Onco PT Podcast, where you'll learn from oncology experts, practitioners, and patients to help you on your journey to become a confident and competent Onco PT. Here's your host, Elise Contu. Happy holidays, Onco PT, and welcome to this episode of the Onco PT Podcast. Here at the Onco PT, we are excitedly wrapping up 2022 and getting ready for an amazing 2023. And to celebrate some of the hard work that we've done over this past year and to give us a little bit of a break, we are bringing back a recap episode where I actually did not interview somebody. In fact, the tables were turned and Dr. Karen Rivera Yapiz, a now practicing licensed physical therapist, asked me questions about what to expect as a new grad, how to navigate some of the challenges of being a new grad physical therapist in this landscape, and some other really fun questions that were so fun to answer. And I'm so delighted that she chose to come onto the podcast and ask me these questions. I know you're going to love this episode. So enjoy my Ask Me Anything episode with Dr. Karen Rivera Yepes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Onco PT Podcast. We are actually turning this podcast on its head for an interview. We're doing a completely different version we are doing an Ask Me Anything podcast episode. And I am very pleased to have a very special guest on the podcast with me today. First, we have to welcome fresh out of school, Dr. Karen Rivera Yepes. (laughs) Hi, thank you for having me. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Karen, it is absolutely my pleasure. So little backstory before we get started on this. So you had actually, if I remember correctly, you emailed Mm -hmm. me asking some really solid questions about kind of getting out from being a student into the professional world as a PT. And y'all, they were such good questions that I immediately turned it back on Karen. I said, hey, would you mind if we actually did a podcast episode all about these questions? Because they were that (laughs) good. So anyways, Karen, thank you so much for uh, volunteering and saying (laughs) yes to coming on the podcast to do this. I'm really, really appreciative of you. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. It's an honor. (laughs) (laughs) So Karen, before we dive into your questions, I would like to ask you for our audience, who are you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. um, Because You've got you've got some really cool stuff to share with us today. Yeah, for sure. So my name is Karen. I just graduated from Northern Arizona University um, in the Phoenix campus. So I'm in a really exciting, really nerve wracking point of my life where I'm preparing for boards and also um, looking for jobs. So um, I think I heard about oncology PT 
um, a little before I went into PT school, um, but I wasn't really fully into it until um, my mom went through her own cancer journey, um, and that got me a little more interested in it, um, specifically to raise awareness for it um, in terms of what physical therapists can do for these patients. Um, so it is an honor for me and a privilege to be able to serve patients um, that are so close to my heart. Um, so I'm really excited to get started with this profession. Um, but yeah, I messaged Elise and I'm like, I need some help. I have no idea what to look for in a job and that kind of thing. So she was gracious enough to let me come on the podcast and let me ask my questions. So thank you, Elise. Oh my gosh. Throwing it back on Karen, she was gracious enough to say yes for this. So I'm, I'm just so thankful for that. Karen, before I turn it back over to you, when do you take your board exam so we can be sending you all the positive, happy vibes and thoughts that day? Yes, um, January 26th. So please keep me in your thoughts and prayers. <laughs> okay. So if you're listening to this after that date has passed, keep sending keep sending positive vibes so that she will be uh, Dr. Karen Rivera, yuppies, PT, DPT. <laughs> yeah, um, the DPT part is there, but we're still right. waiting on the PT. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Well, Karen, thanks so much for the introduction. I'm turning it over to you now. So let's get started. Yeah. So um, I first wanted to start with just a really broad, what would you recommend in terms of what to look for in a job? It can be in terms of the position specifically, company values, um, culture, that kind of thing. What would you look for? That's a really good question. And also, I haven't seen any of these questions either. So y'all are getting to hear my thoughts on the fly. <laughs> I would say the most important thing, and looking back on my journey, I think the most important thing that you could look for in a position, wherever that is, is the company mission and the company culture. Yeah. And I think it's really important that those match in person, because, you know, like you can you can talk mm -hmm. about things and you can have things written down, but actually having them come to fruition in real life is is very, very different. Yeah. So I would say having a company mission and culture that match each other, but also are in line with what you want to do and the impact that you want to make, regardless of the patient population that they're saying you would treat. Like if, I think if those two, if those match, whatever patient population that you want to serve, like y'all will find a way to make it actually happen. Sure. And I know that sounds kind of like frou-frou or like little woo, but I really do. Like yeah. the, I have been in positions not just in PT, but like where the company mission and the culture don't match. And it makes for a really, un it made for a really uncomfortable working position personally. And I don't enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and I think it's pretty honest too. It, it shows the honesty of the company. I would agree with that. Um, my second question is in terms of, so I'm mostly looking for jobs in an outpatient setting because that's what I'm interested in, but my biggest thing with the outpatient setting is you don't always have unlimited time or, you know, the hour that you would normally allot to each patient. Um, if it were more specif 
are specific to like lymphedema, so to speak. Um, so how could you um, advocate for your patients and for yourself for additional treatment time if you felt like it was necessary? Ooh, this is good. I think any part of advocating, whether it's for yourself or for patients, is that you have to be vocal about it and you have to be vocal about it many times. It's not enough to just say something once and hope that it sticks. It's really important if you believe in something, if you know, based on your clinical judgment that this patient needs blah, blah, whether it's more more time in therapy sessions, they need more therapy visits, they need this equipment. You have to be vocal mm -hmm. about it. You have to tell people, you have to tell people multiple times and not necessarily like beat a dead horse into the ground, but, and this is something that I think we forget as humans of like, if I tell somebody something once, they're not necessarily going to remember it. And it's not mm -hmm. even necessarily, they're trying to forget it or tune me out. There's so much going on in each of our lives. And we have to appreciate that from a workplace too, of like, if I'm not telling my coworkers, my, my supervisors or, you know, whoever it is, you know, the, the other healthcare providers that I'm working with, the message I want them to hear multiple times, they're not necessarily going to receive that message. And so I say first and foremost, if you're advocating for whatever, for patient, for you, et cetera, you need to be explicitly sharing that message multiple times. And then, which is easier said than done, don't back down from mm -hmm. what you think. And it's it's so easy to say this. It's way harder to actually implement it. But if you know something in your heart of hearts, again, whatever that is, stick to your guns. If you know it's right, then don't back down. Because, and that's one of the things that a previous coworker told me is like, if you let them run over you on this thing, this mm -hmm. small thing, whatever it was at the time, they will run you over for every other thing. And again, this is not like a the workplace is out to get you. It's just, that's just kind of how life is. And so if you can be vocal mm -hmm. over and over again to get the message across and then don't back down, those are, I think are the two most powerful things you can do when it comes to advocating for you, for patient, et cetera. For sure. I love that. And then with the time that you do have, how would you structure it in terms of having a patient that may have multiple um, complaints? So let's see, we're seeing them initially for range of motion loss, but then it turns out like they have issues with endurance and balance. How would you structure your, um, your time in order to be efficient? Oh, okay. First and foremost, this is like every patient that we see, right? <laughs> as much as, you know, we'd like it to be very, you know, very uh, neat and able to wrap up in a box. Patient has <laughs> this problem. They're a whole body. They're a whole person with all kinds of problems. And so the likelihood that you'll encounter a patient with multiple problems is, is I would say like 99%. For sure. So in that case, especially when you're working with a patient who, I don't know about you, but sometimes when you go into a room with a patient and you start talking to them and reading the patient chart, it quickly becomes this, oh my God, how am I going to work with all of this? 
the most important thing I think you can do in that case, or in any case where you have a person with multiple problems is really investigate, talk with the patient. Mm -hmm. What is bothering them the most? Mm -hmm. And I think this really helps with patient buy-in too, is if you can really connect to what their, their biggest issue is and why it's an issue, you know, like, yes, shoulder range of motion is a problem, but how does that actually affect your ability to do what you want to do, what you need to do? If you can, if you can get to that and then connect it and then start to work on that, I think that helps patients really just get fired up about, wow, this person can help me and they are helping me do what I want to do. And from there, that's how I kind of prioritize, okay, what Mm -hmm. is most important to my patient right here, right now? Why is it important? And then I can kind of work backwards as far as, okay, once I kind of get this stabilized, maybe I can work on this. And, oh, you know, this is a really, really big problem for them. I'm going to move that up the list, whereas this maybe isn't so bad. But again, using the patient, using their words to really figure out what's important to them can help you start to prioritize the impairments. Because, again, you're probably going to encounter patients with a whole like laundry list of problems more often than not. No, that's huge. And, and like you said, you know, we could spend all day trying to focus on the other stuff, but if it's not relevant to the patient, if it's not getting them back to doing what they want to do, then it's, it's kind of not, not the best use of your time for sure. Right. And you know, like we, we obviously have this clinical decision-making to say, yep, this is a problem. I know this, I did this test and measure. Right. I mean, but how often have you been working with a patient, even in your student experiences of, Mm -hmm. you know, this will help them, but they just, they just weren't sold on it. They just weren't on board. And ultimately like your, your plan didn't go as far as what you know it could have because Mm -hmm. of that. Right. Yeah. Um, Going off of that as well, kind of. My next question is in terms of support staff, because I haven't been in the oncology world too, too long. I mean, I did a rotation um, in oncology, but we we basically had one hour treatment sessions. Um, we didn't have any techs or PTAs. So I'm curious in, in the outpatient world, have you seen them being used um, so the use of PTAs or techs, and how would you use them? Yeah. So I think it really depends on who you have. And mm-hmm. yeah, let's start with that. Like, who do you have? Um, I have been in situations where I was the clinician. Mm-hmm. That was it. There was no support staff. There was an admin, but there was nobody who clinically could help with that. So in that case, it's on you to, you know, use your skills and use them wisely so you can help the patient. As far as when it comes to a tech, I have been in a facility. I've been in one facility. I can say this very confidently that used PT techs beautifully. Hmm. 
And for them, because I have also been in, I will be the first to say, I have been a PT tech who did way more than what is allowed by the Texas State Practice Act. Like, yeah, not good. So I've I've kind of seen the gamut. I have been the worst and I've seen the best. (laughs) I think it's really important to first and foremost understand what can that provide? What can that person do? You know, Mm -hmm. is it a PT tech? Is it a PT, um, you know, like a physical therapist assistant? Because those are very, very different things. And ultimately, you know, Karen, you and I are both DPTs. It falls on us to know, like, what's within their scope of practice, what's not mm-hmm. because our license is the one like our butts on the line. So yeah. <laughs> as much as I don't like to take on more responsibility, like that is something we have to really be aware of. And so in that case, in the situation where I saw the text being used amazingly, mm-hmm. they were used. Um, I'm totally going to shorten down what they, I know that I know they did so much more, but this is what I can remember. They did a really fantastic job of when it was eval time, when it was re-eval time, they were the ones who would have all of the um, outcome measures ready. So um, patient reported outcomes, they would have those ready. They would then take them from the patient. They would input them into the computer. Um, They had a computer system where they could upload the scores. And so you could see that. So then I'm not trying to calculate like, oh, what kind of score did they get on this patient right. outcome? And I know that seems small, but when you're doing an eval and you've got, you know, when you're booked all day long, that makes a difference. They would really help clean. And again, I know I'm, I'm, I'm paring down what they did so much, but these are the things I remember that they were so on top of and so helpful. They would clean. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, what else did they do? I'm totally blanking now, but it's these, it's, it's these little things that add up mm-hmm. very, very quickly over the course of a day. So I would say, you know, what are some things that you do multiple times a day, every single day that you really don't need to do? Like you don't need a DPT to do that. Taking out the laundry. I would have killed to have a tech who could take the laundry out every morning from the clinic I was at down two flights of stairs and put it in the hamper mm-hmm. and fold laundry. I, I will do it. I'm not above doing it, but if you could have a tech fold the laundry, like please have them do that. Wipe off the tables, clean the equipment, you know, maybe even like, I don't know, checking people in. Could they, t- could they take them back to the treatment, you know, the treatment area? That's an option. This is me kind of brainstorming out loud right now, but Think of the things for a tech. What are some like non-patient care? I've got some quotation marks going. Things that you are doing multiple times daily that you don't need a DPT for. Like you don't need a medical healthcare degree for. So I would say like that would be a great way to know kind of how can I use this tech to really be beneficial? There's so many more ways. Like Mm -hmm. I know. I am forgetting and skipping over so many things, but I remember those being really, really impactful when it came to those texts. For a PTA, I was, I haven't seen this explicitly in oncology, but I was in an inpatient rehab facility Mm -hmm. that used PTAs and CODAs. And it was a great, they had such a great team dynamic of, I think for every PT and OT, there was a 
PTA and ACOTA or the, the ratios were very similar. It was a very, very big rehab team, very, very big rehab facility. And so you think about like a lot of the things that we as the, the PTs were doing is we were doing evaluations. We were making some of those, you know, like clinical decision evaluation decisions that PTAs are not trained to do. And so PTAs were doing a lot of the daily treats. And sometimes we would even trade off on who's doing a daily treat this day, who's doing a daily treat this day. So you obviously like the scope of a PTA is vastly more um, than what I could do. And I think it really does boil down to us as far as we as the PT have to know what's in our scope of practice, what's in their scope of practice, because ultimately like it is our license on the line. Right. For sure. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, Yeah. My, my main curiosity was if you had seen it in the oncology setting specifically, um, because I know I, I see a lot of clinics where it, the PT will be with the patient for 15, 20 minutes, and then they're handed off to a tech, which feels like you can't do that with the oncology population. And and you bring up a really good point, Karen. You know, we think about, which I don't know how much you've seen yet in your career, but I mean, our patients are very dynamic. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes they go from being really okay to really not okay in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that, is so important for us as oncology providers to recognize is like when things are going wrong and then what the appropriate decision is. Me as a tech, I didn't know up from down some days. Um, You know, I wouldn't be able to tell when a patient is having, you know, maybe they were tired from that exercise Mm -hmm. versus we are having a crisis right now. We need to Mm -hmm. deal with this. Um, So I'm biased. I don't think that you can really do that model that you talked about. I know I was part of that model when I was like a tech. So I say this with the recognition of I've been there and I've done that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, My next question was in terms of how to network either with physicians, surgeons, other healthcare providers, how would you network in order to um, help you like build up uh, a referral base or, or a caseload? I'm going to go back to, I think one of the first points I made way back when was you have to talk about it and mm-hmm. you have to talk about it often. A lot. <laughs> and I'm going to say you probably can't over talk about it. You probably could. But again, just because we are sending a message doesn't mean that necessarily the message is being received Mm. by that other person, whether it's a colleague, a patient, a physician, a nurse practitioner, etc. So talk about it and talk about it often. Talk about it with a bunch of people. Tell Mm. everybody how excited you are to treat these patients. (laughs) I would say there's kind of three levels of trying to increase your patient load. And that's, that's how I look at it is you have you and your colleagues, your coworkers, even your supervisors, you have the oncology facility, maybe it's a clinic, maybe it's, you know, hospital, some kind of treatment center, some oncology practice. 
And then you have the community. And so if we look at the the practice level of, you know, maybe you're in a hospital, you're, you're looking to do more outpatient. So I'm going to talk more to the outpatient side of things. Like in your clinic, you're probably going to have a couple colleagues, you know, maybe some, you know, a supervisor who's maybe on-site or off-site talking to those people and making them aware that you want to treat this patient population. They can help funnel in patients to wherever you're at. So Mm -hmm. one of the previous practices I was at, they even had a marketing team. This is a really big company. They had a marketing team that would go and market to the physicians. And so if they were aware, or if my supervisor was aware, like they could actually go and talk to the oncology team and say, yeah, we've got some clinicians who are really good, really excited about treating this patient population. They can help facilitate that. So that's on the, the clinic level, the practice level. Then there's the oncology level. And for me, the best way that I found was not bringing them cookies and bringing them lunch. That didn't work for me. It works for some people. It doesn't work for me. I actually found that when I was most effective was going to the community level. And I wasn't trying to go behind the backs of the oncologists by any means, but sometimes they were just so busy that it was in one ear and out the other for them. Where I really found benefit was when I would do community in-services. And sometimes this was even in the oncology center. Like Mm -hmm. I booked a room over lunch and had the, this, this oncology clinic I was at share the news and advertise to the patients And I actually had a 100% conversion rate of people who came to my in-services and then scheduled an eval. Wow. Which is pretty darn good. I I connected with less people that way, but it was more worth my while to Mm -hmm. do it that way. And so actually connecting with those patients in that way, then my patients would come in and, you know, we would obviously work on their issues, whatever it was, and they would go back to their oncologist. So this is where that second level comes in. They would then come back to their oncologist and say really nice things about me and the work that we were doing because they're like, wow, I can walk better. Or look, my (laughs) arm isn't so swollen. And that is what oncologists pay attention to. Mm -hmm. I can sing from the rooftops all day long about I can do this. I can do really good stuff. But when those patients come in and they say, wow, look at this, look at how much better I'm doing. They pay attention. And that, in my opinion, is the best way when patients are saying, wow, Karen is a really fantastic PT. You need to send all your patients to her. They do. Maybe not all the patients, but they pay attention to that. They pay attention to their patients if they're good oncologists. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that would be really powerful, like speaking to the patients directly. Um, I think, I'm not sure if Texas is the same. Um, I know Arizona is a direct access state, um, but I guess the major barrier would be needing a physician referral, mostly for insurance purposes and, and that kind of thing. So how, do you have any recommendations on how to, I guess, still um, aim for communicating with patients in the community um, and still being able to to have those referrals? 
Absolutely. So in Texas, again, I don't know the rules for Arizona, but I am allowed, and this just changed. See, this is why we got to keep up on this stuff. I think now as a board certified clinician, I can treat patients for up to 15 days before I need a referral. It is, Mm -hmm. Texas is a, it is one of the more restricted states. So again, I recognize your state, your rules may be very, very different from mine, but this, I think this is the recent update for us. So I can get a patient in the door, evaluate them and treat them for a certain period of time Mm -hmm. before I need an, before I need a referral. But as soon as I do that um, eval, I am, I'm sending that referral, like, please sign the the script, Mm -hmm. what have you. And most of the time, if you're not coming out of like complete left field, most of the time the oncologists are usually quick to get that referral back. Very dependent person to person. One thing that really helps in that case, if we're trying to get a timely um, signature on that, have the patient also reach out, say, hey, my Mm -hmm. PT just sent over a script. Will you please sign it? So Mm -hmm. having the, again, I know these patients are dealing with a lot, but if we can put the ball in their court a little bit to say Mm -hmm. like, hey, I really need you to follow up with your oncologist and make sure they know this is coming. Mm -hmm. Again, if the patient is telling them, hey, I'm going to this PT and they're really helping me, they're going to pay attention to that more and then they will probably sign the script. Do I still have to get on some oncologists' rear ends to sign my scripts? Yes. Um, (laughs) I had to do that when I was working in corporate too. So literally nothing's changed (laughs) except where I work now. So Mm -hmm. fair enough. But it just streamlines things a little more. That makes sense. Yeah. Nice. Um, The next question I had was a fun one. Um, so I had to ask you in terms of um, the PORI Institute, the Physiological Oncology Rehabilitation Institute, mm-hmm. which is a certification um, compared to li- different lymphedema certifications, if you have any <laughs> insight into one or the other. Yes, this was such a good question. So I actually, I have seen this one question because um, Karen sent it over and I was like, oh my God, that's so good. So the question is PORI over lymphedema certification. And the awesome answer that we've all heard time and time again is it depends. <laughs> and I will follow it up with a here's why. Mm-hmm. I think it really depends on the type of patient you are going to be treating when you start working. Mm-hmm. In general, if you are going to be treating cancer rehab and not like, yes, some lymphedema, but not exclusively lymphedema or, you know, not having a caseload that is predominantly lymphedema, I would probably suggest towards PORI Mm -hmm. because PORI has some really, really great courses that cover such a breadth, but also a depth to an extent of oncology rehab. So if you want oncology that is the way to go, in my opinion. I haven't taken it yet. That is on my list because I know that they're really, really good stuff. If you think that you are going to be treating a heavy caseload of of lymphedema, 
I walked out of my, so I went to Norton. This is not an ad for them. They should pay <laughs> me though because I really like them. Um, I went to my, I did my Norton CLT course basically two weeks after I graduated from PT school. And I walked out of that and I still had about two months between when I finished and when I started working. Mm-hmm. And I walked in day one of my job and I started treating lymphedema patients really well right away. And I attribute that entirely to that lymphedema certification course. I had fabulous instructors, fabulous material. And it's a good thing that I did. The original plan in my work setting, when I first graduated, when I was first working, I would be treating the general orthopedic oncology population. So like I was in an oncology clinic, I'd treat the general and then another PT would treat the lymphedema. This PT left. Mm. And guess what I was treating? <laughs> Pretty much 50 to 80% of the time. Mm-hmm. Lymphedema. And so for me, I'm so glad that I did that yeah. because it's also, I think having an understanding of lymphedema management, it meshes so well with oncology. So if you have the ability to find out what patient population you're going to be working with more right off the bat, mm-hmm. I would use that to make your decision. <sighs> if I had to pick one, not knowing where you were going, I'd have to think on that more. <laughs> I think it would kind of depend. Tell me about your last clinical rotation. Um, the the oncology one? or Yeah. yeah. Um, so that one was, it was a hospital based outpatient mm-hmm. and it had to do, it was, I would say about 80% lymphedema mm-hmm. and the rest was like a little bit of musculoskeletal here and there, mm-hmm. but they also had, um, ortho PTs. So if, if the patient had like significant, um, ortho issues, they would just send them to that. Um, to the other PTs. Gotcha. If I had to pick one based on, I didn't know where, what kind of patient population you were going to be working with next. Mm -hmm. (sighs) I might kick myself later for saying this, but I'm going (laughs) to go with it. I think it's really, really important to have a very general oncology understanding. Mm -hmm. And even if that means that you have to delay a little bit to start treating more lymphedema until, because I really do encourage people to get their CLT, mm-hmm. I would probably go PORI first and mm-hmm. then CLT if you were blind going in, knowing the rotation that you had. Right. That's fair. That's my thought. Yeah. You, can, you can take it and run with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Um, because, yeah, I mean, I would definitely not consider myself an expert in lymphedema by any means. But I do feel having some exposure to it already, I definitely want to dive in deeper into, like, exercise prescription for oncology patients and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> and then, ooh, follow-up question. Yeah. Um, I guess, so you took it, it sounds like a couple months before you even started working. Okay. Um, because I was debating whether to do it. I know it would probably be once I start, um, but I was wondering, you know, at what point should I begin, um, I guess, continuing ed courses just because I know they can be overwhelming, but very helpful. <laughs> mm. 
Now that's a good question. If I had to redo what I did, I, I, I would not trade the fact that I had such a robust foundation for lymphedema before I started working. However, one thing I did not realize is that because I took that course, that I took my CLT course before I had passed my boards, I could not submit for CEUs. Oh. And Karen, that is 135 hours I spent learning that stuff. <laughs> so if you have the opportunity, um, again, I would not trade the knowledge I had going into my first day of work, but hot darn, like, I wish I could have had CEUs for that. <laughs> Make up for it. Yeah. So anyways, like, it, it all worked out, obviously. I'm, I still yeah. have my license a couple <laughs> years later, so we were fine. But I think the cool thing now is that since you're graduated and you're about to pass your board exams, you get to start learning stuff for fun again. Mm -hmm. I, just, I just love that. Maybe that's for <laughs> you. But I think if you can kind of come up with a plan of these are some things I'd like to learn and you don't have to have a plan day one. Like as you go throughout your, you know, your first months, your first year, you can start picking up on, you know what? I need to learn more about this. I need to learn more about that. But in Texas, our license, our first like, well, I think every license, we have to renew every two years. And so you have to make sure that you get all of your CEUs within that two-year time frame. So mm -hmm. the earlier you start, the less likely you are to wait until the night before. I do know a couple of people who've done that. Don't do that. <laughs> so if you can kind of be taking things throughout, I think it helps to rejuvenate our practice, adds a little spark back into it. And again, you get to learn along the way of like, okay, I'm going to try and implement this and then I'll wait a while and then I'll take my next course, whatever it is. And mm -hmm. that would be my recommendation on, you should start thinking about CEUs, but don't feel like you have to take them all in that first month of work. That's, okay. that's absurd. Okay. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> um, let's see um, when you first started seeing patients as an oncology PT, did you come across any like obscure cancers you had never even heard of before? <laughs> and what did you do? Answer is yes. Um, I'm trying to think of, I've had a couple diagnoses that I wasn't familiar with. I think Oh, drat. There's two that come to mind. So one's a diagnosis and then one's a type of cancer treatment I had never heard of before. So the first one, um, in oncology treatment facilities, mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot of oncology, but some oncologists are hematologists, on, like hematologists or oncologists, and they treat people with blood disorders. Sometimes it's cancer, sometimes it's not. I had a patient who had thalassemia, and I'm not going to lie, I still don't fully understand what that is. It's a blood disorder. Um, that's all I can explain on it because st I still <laughs> have so much to learn on it. And so for this patient, she presented, she wasn't on chemo, she was on some medication for her disease, 
but she presented very, very much like a significantly deconditioned oncology patient. Mm -hmm. And it was a long road back for her. And it was a very, very challenging road. So anyways, that diagnosis was kind of out of left field. Mm -hmm. So be aware, sometimes you'll see hematology things that you don't fully understand. I had one though, the the thing that takes the cake that I remember most, I had a patient who was referred to me for back pain. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, back pain. Great. Until I opened up the patient chart and God bless this patient. Um, He had metastatic colorectal cancer, I think. Mm -hmm. So anyways, years long history, years long treatments. And the most recent thing that he had most recent surgical procedure he had like a uh, six months to a year prior was a pelvic exenteration, which I read this and said, say what? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm frantically Googling it before this patient comes in the door. And in essence, they, they go in and they scoop out your innards from your mm-hmm. pelvis and they remove them. And so this patient Again, metastatic colorectal cancer. Mm -hmm. Cancer was very widespread in this pelvis. They took out a lot of soft tissue to try and get ahead of it as much as they could so that he ended up with an external um, bag for urine and then a a colostomy as well. So he had Mm -hmm. two bags. Um, And so this patient with back pain walks in. And Karen, I don't know if um, you've ever heard of a pelvic exenteration or I'm thinking about how this can affect a person but it was like he almost had a functional scoliosis because of how everything had changed after that procedure internally. Like he was tight in some areas and he was really, you know, he was rotated and kind of, you know, turned to the side and everything. And it was just that that procedure had wrecked his pelvis and his low back so much just from that removal and the compensations that he had picked up along the way. Yeah. I had no clue what I was doing. And so thankfully I saw that he was doing a lot of chest breathing. So I prescribed him diaphragmatic breathing. And then I coincidentally had an interview with Beth Hogue on the podcast. She's an oncology pelvic floor PT from Canada that oh. night. And so after our interview, I said, Beth, please help me. Walk me through it. And so, yes, I have definitely encountered that. I will still continue to encounter it. Yeah. <laughs> but those are the two that come to mind right away. That's wild. <laughs> <sighs> I know I have to brace myself, but I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know what to expect. <laughs> and, you know, I am not above googling things on my computer as patients tell me and I think the more open we are about that of you know what I'm not very familiar with that I'm going to um I'm going to do some more research into that I think they appreciate that I think they're like oh this is a human who really wants to know more about how they can help me awesome that's a good point (laughs) um and then just a couple more questions um do you have any resources in terms of creating or planning uh, some sort of prehabilitation program because it would be my dream to eventually, you know, have this whole process of like, okay, I'm getting referrals from patients, um, ideally before surgery, but um, 
yeah, just knowing how to um, organize um, and evaluate. Yes. Okay. There's a theme. Uh, you've heard me say it before. Talk about it. Advocate mm -hmm. for it. Talk about it with everybody you encounter. Um, really push. I think one of the best places that we can harness this and make it happen, at least in the patient population that I see. I tend to see a ton of breast. Mm -hmm. That is that is what I see. We've got some really prominent breast oncologists here in Fort Worth, Texas. And so those surgeons, those breast surgeons, or you know, whoever surgeons, whoever you're going to be working with, they're a lot of times the first person that the patient is referred to for their care. And then they get kind of hooked up with the oncologist, whatever it's different mm -hmm. for different areas, but that surgeon is really kind of a, a, a gateway into if you can get them to refer to you, mm -hmm. the likelihood that you'll be able to do like true prehab versus if you were working with a radiation oncologist or a medical oncologist to make a prehab program happen a lot of times in my previous facility, I would get prehab referrals from the medical oncologist or from the radiation oncologist mm -hmm. during their treatment or even like they're starting chemo tomorrow. I'm referring them for prehab today. <laughs> and it's like, okay. So it's easier in my opinion, if you can work with the surgeons mm. to create a true prehab program. So Talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it with everybody. Know who the people are who could really facilitate that mm -hmm. surgeons, but also who are the people in the surgeon's office who can help refer patients to who are other people. And this isn't just for prehab, but who are other people who could help get patients connected to you? Maybe mm -hmm. it's a managers, maybe it's triage nurses, maybe it's um, nurse navigators. There's all these other people who can help integrate you into the process. And I think prehab, this is not to discourage you. This is something that I've experienced. And I really wish that others have figured out how to do it better than me. Prehab was really challenging to implement. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think in the particular facility I was in, rehab is very reflexive and it's very much a, oh crap, we have neuropathy, get them to PT. When you know we're back here saying, oh my gosh, they should have been sent to us ages ago. Right. But again, identifying those key players who can make a true prehab referral happen Mm -hmm. And then talk, 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 talk about it to those people. And I think one of the things that, especially in the medical community, people really respond to is, is this happening other places? And yes, mm -hmm. it is. We know this. And so if you can point to other programs, other articles, literature that are saying, look, we can do it. And this is how we did it. And now this is what's happening as a result. Yeah. I think if people can see that and say, oh, well, we should be doing this too. Right. Yeah. I think that's pretty powerful too. Mm -hmm. um, if you just come in saying, we need to do prehab because I said so. I don't know if that would, I think that would get you places. I don't know if that would get you very far in a, in a lasting program because you want this prehab program to last forever. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, I think that's huge. And and like you said, being able to show results of like other programs and how they've implemented it and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think, oh, drat. I can't remember. It was one of the guests on my podcast. And now I can't remember. It, it was a physical therapist. I, I will have to go back and do some digging. But um, Dr. Tony Storm is a breast oncologist out mm-hmm. of the... I think Washington area. And she is, uh, she's just a gem because she is one of those super rehab, like pro rehab Mm -hmm. surgeons. And so she has been really instrumental in, she partnered with PTs and they've made this happen. And so if you can get one, even if it's one Karen, if you can get one surgeon really on board and then you can show the results like this surgeon is look at the, look at the decreased complications, look at the improved, I don't know, outcomes that this surgeon is getting. Other surgeons are going to pay attention to that because let's face it, like we are trying to be the best in our community. (laughs) And if they know that this surgeon is doing this and their, their patients are getting better, they're going to need to do that. They're going to need to keep up. Absolutely. So even if you can just start with one, Hmm. that makes such a difference. Yeah. I love it. All right. Um, My last question is in terms of how, I guess, how to create um, a position when you don't find what you're looking for. Because the thing I'm running into quite a bit is like, I'll see cancer centers that are local to my area and they're, they're never hiring physical therapists. You know, they provide all these awesome opportunities, but they don't either, they don't know what physical therapy can do for their patients or for X, Y, or Z reason. It's just not an opportunity that is existing. So do you have any tips um, on how to, I guess, be a trailblazer and make your, Make your own position, <laughs> so to speak. Karen, I love this question because <laughs> I think this is the question that so many of us are asking. So many students are saying, I know I want to work with this patient population, but I don't I don't know where to find this job. The cancer centers aren't hiring. How can I actually help these patients? And I think I really lucked into finding the job I did, which was in a cancer center working with these patients all the time. I hope I can look back on this interview in five, 10 years, 15 years and be like, oh, that was so funny. We didn't even have these positions back then, but this is the reality right now. So how the heck do we break in to working with these patients? And I think, and again, I'm going to go back to my, I think the very first question you asked was about, you know, how do you, how do you find a company? How do you know that like, this is a good fit? I think if you can go back to the culture and the mission match and they align with you, you can make anything work. If you can find a workplace that believes in you, the quality of service you provide, they will support you. I believe this firmly in my heart. They will support you in seeking to care for more people including the oncology patient population. Mm -hmm. So if you can find a place that gels, that you gel with, and that's, it it serves you as much as like you work with 
Like you're working with them, they're working with you. And so that's the most important part. Aside from oncology, in a cancer center, whatever, if you can find those things, we have a really solid foundation because they can then help you, support you, equip you to then be able to, again, talk about it. Talk about it. Talk about it with your coworkers. Talk about it with your current patients, whoever that is. Talk about it with your colleagues. Talk about it with your supervisors. Talk about it with your neighbor. Talk about it with your mama or whoever. (laughs) And they can help you start to make those connections because, Karen, who knows? You might be the trailblazer (laughs) in the facility where you end up working that is making those first connections with the cancer center down the street or Mm -hmm. with, you know, in Fort Worth, Texas, we have this organization called Cancer Care Services. It's a, like they provide all these free services to cancer patients mm-hmm. that are kind of adjacent to cancer treatment. And they're helping to connect patients with physical therapy, social work, counseling, mm-hmm. diet, like dietetics. So I think if you find a company, if you find a culture that serves you, that fulfills you in your mission to serve other people, mm-hmm. you can make, you can start to connect those dots. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the big thing is we may have to step more into a trailblazing role in oncology than maybe some of our, our classmates and our colleagues do in other settings. Sure. And for some people, that's kind of scary, but for me, that's kind of exciting. It's a challenge. And you could be the person that starts this and makes a lasting relationship that is then able to serve patients throughout your time with that company and beyond your time with that company. Like, how cool is that? (laughs) Yeah, that would be the dream. (laughs) Oh, um, we need an update in like a year to see where you are and what's going on, because I really want to know. Yes. Hopefully I'm employed after I pass my boards. <laughs> so Karen, then what's kind of, what's kind of the next steps for you? I know obviously boards are coming up, but are you, you know, for our listeners, are you looking for a job? You know, what's, what's kind of this, because you've just graduated in December, right? I did. Um, And I do have a a job offer. Um, So yeah, and it is um, in an outpatient clinic um, that is wanting to essentially kickstart an oncology program. There's, um, they already have kind of a patient base, but it's been mostly um, like from overflow from pelvic PT. Oh, interesting. So they don't have an oncology PT yet, but um, they reached out to me since I showed interest in um, oncology. So yeah, I'm excited. That is so cool. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. Thank (laughs) you. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for having me, Elise. I I felt like it was very helpful. Um, Again, not only in terms of um, kind of seeing the direction that I want to go with in college, but also just um, in terms of my pra- my future practice and being able to, to help patients. So thank you so much. Oh my God, Karen, you're so welcome. Uh, thank you so much to you for coming on the podcast, for agreeing to do this. You know, one of the things I mentioned to you in our in- initial email exchanges, 
if you're having these questions, other people are having these questions mm -hmm. and they're really, really good questions that I don't feel like we talk about enough. So I'm just so appreciative of you for coming on the podcast, for coming up these questions with sharing these questions and answers, because I think more people need to know this. And I wish I had this guidance when <laughs> I was first starting. <laughs> Because I was a hot mess. <laughs> For sure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you again so much to Karen for agreeing to come on the podcast, for agreeing to share the questions that she had. I'm I'm so grateful, Karen, that you reached out because, again, as I said in the podcast, if you're having these questions, I know other people, other new grads or soon-to-be new grads are having this question. And I am so grateful this was a fabulous episode. I really enjoyed having Karen. And I hope you enjoyed learning and getting information from her questions as much as I really enjoyed answering them. So thank you again. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And yeah, see you on the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Onco PT Podcast. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, leave a rating and review, or support us on Patreon.